is in your bulletin for sure, the saddest words in the Bible, but that's in conjunction with the message that I told you that we were going to start next week on Alice in Wonderland, and nothing makes sense anymore. And those, that, the saddest words in the Bible, the, the, the title of today's sermon and 2020, the new Alice in Wonderland, are all going to fit, at least I hope, I hope they fit together. What we need to understand today, it's time for the realization that we are no longer living in the same country. I'm not sure we're living on the same planet, to be honest with you. But I wonder, sincerely, are we in the same country? The same country that we were living in six months ago. I am convinced, people, that this world is teetering on an edge of an abyss. And you say, Pastor, it's not as bad as you think. Well, you're right, I think it's worse. I am convinced that that shining light on a hill is close to being extinguished. I'm concerned for my country. Well, at the same time, I, I'm excited about heaven and being caught up to that city not made with hands. What a joyous day that's going to be. But until the Lord calls His church home, right now I literally feel like I have fallen down a rabbit hole. Now that's a reference to Lewis Carroll's story, Alice in Wonderland. In the next two weeks I'm going to be expanding on that concept and what I mean by falling down a rabbit hole. Because Alice says in that book, she asked the question, why doesn't anything make sense anymore? Why doesn't anything make sense anymore? But what's interesting about that story as you get into it, the more nonsensical things that occurred to Alice the more normal and acceptable the original ridiculous and nonsensical things became acceptable. You ever thought about that? I mean, as she's falling down that rabbit hole, I mean, you saw a lot of really weird things happening, but by the time the story is over with, a grinning Cheshire cat, a mad hatter, and a talking rabbit that was late seems normal. And I'm convinced that we're in that same predicament here today. Things are changing so rapidly, things are happening so quickly that the things that we would have considered ridiculous just a year ago. Imagine with me just a moment, a year ago, six months ago, seven months ago, if I'd have said, hey, listen, in six months, you're going to have to wear a mask into a restaurant. And then when you sit at your table, you'll be expected to take that mask off. Some people are even going to want to eat with that mask on. And then when they get up, they're going to have to leave you and say, don't be silly. Don't be ridiculous. Why, that's, the, that's absurd. If I had told you six to seven months ago that there would be no graduation, no high school graduation, had I told you there was going to be no high school proms, uh, those seniors will kill before they allow that to happen. That's ridiculous. Quit being so absurd. Had I told you there would be no baseball games this summer, told me, that's the most ridiculous thing we have ever heard. That's nonsensical. And heaven help us, they're talking about perhaps no football? 
<laughs> Wait a minute, they didn't go on too far now, but that's, that's a whole other. But you would have said, that's being ridiculous. If I had told you just six months ago that cities would be inflamed and the leaders of those cities would stand by and absolutely do nothing but yet go on camera and justify what was taking place in their city, you would shake your head and say, you need to be locked up. See, the ridiculous things are the process of becoming normal and acceptable. If I'd have told you six months ago that designers were going to start issuing masks with your dresses and your suits, forget they're going to be cloth swatches, you're going to have a mask that matches your tie, you know what you would have told me? You are ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. But folks, we're there. And I, have fall, I, have, I feel like I've fallen down a rabbit hole. Actually, actually, there's a name for what we're going through. And folks, you need to familiarize yourself with what's happening. There's a name for what's happening, and it's called Hegelian dialectic. Hegelian dialectic. You ever heard of Hegelian dialectic? I told someone what I was going to be preaching on, and he said, wow, you must have a really smart congregation. And I said, I really, really do. And, and the ones who don't get it, have a nice nap. But we're going to look at what's transpiring, transpiring in our nation, and it all has to do with Hegelian dialectic. Understand, it is the framework for guiding our thoughts and actions into conflicts that lead us to a predetermined solution, not salvation. Scratch salvation. Sorry, Tim. That leads us to a predetermined solution. I wish it was salvation. Of course, those that promote that really believe, they really believe that, salvation. And since we're talking about philosophy, that really wasn't a Freudian slip, right, Tim? Okay. This is a philosophy that came about by a, the name of a German philosopher, George Hegel. And this is a philosophy that has been adopted. The methods of this philosophy have been implemented by global elitists, one world government provocateurs whose goals and objectives are to bring about their new world order, their global strategy, their idea of one world government, a one world church, a cashless society, and you say, nah, that's not happening. Well, if you think this group does not exist, then you need to get your head out of the sand. And it's about time the churches start recognizing what's going on, what's taking place, and start standing against a philosophy. And, and, and when, you, when I explain to what this philosophy is here in a second, there's perhaps nothing evil in it. Well, there that kind of is. But anyway, it's how this philosophy is being used. It's how it's being promoted that really is the danger. I'll tell you who one of the, the main proponents of this philosophy was. Maybe you recognize the name Karl Marx. Matter of fact, he took this Hegelian dialectic and he changed it just a little bit. He twerked it, changed it, and now it's called dialectic materialism. And it's part of the foundation of Marxism, socialism, communism. And that is the direction that so many elitists are taking us today. These are people that favor this Hegelian dialectic, that are bent on a world, one world government, a one world church, a one world currency, 
They're bent on controlling the masses. And folks, it is promoted by the mainstream media. It is promoted by government entities on both sides of the aisle. You need to understand, it's both sides of the aisle that are promoting this. And the institutes, institutions of higher learning. Your colleges, your universities are producing people who see this as being the salvation of the world. And when I explain to you what it is, hopefully it's going to cause you to spend more time on your knees before God praying as you realize what's taking place in this country. A Galean dialectic is the framework for guiding our thoughts and actions into conflicts that lead us all uh, to a predetermined solution. This is a philosophy that's being used to manipulate us all. We've all are victims to this philosophy. It's to enslave humanity. And if this has its way, it is, it is, the purpose is to make each and every one of us glad and thankful to be so well protected and so cared for by the state. That's what's going on, folks. And the ridiculous becomes commonplace. The absurdities become normal. And we don't recognize what's normal anymore as we embrace Hegelian dialectic. And every one of us, every one of you sitting here, me included, everyone listening are victims of this philosophy. You know the difference? The difference is the pace of this diabolical principle has been drastically accelerated. Hmm, I don't know why. You draw your own conclusions as to why all of a sudden it has just been pumped up. I, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with an election. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with a swamp that just does not want to be drained. Maybe it has something to do with a thing called Pizzagate. Maybe it has something to do with something called adrenochrome harvesting. You ever heard of adrenochrome, adrenochrome harvesting? I'm not going to tell you. I want you to look it up and then be prepared to be shocked. Be prepared to be sickened. Be prepared to spend time on your face before God wondering about what's going on. Understanding and realizing just how evil this world is and we're seeing it clearly. When you think, when you think about Hegelian dialectic, that's the philosophy where you have a, a thesis versus an antithesis equals a synthesis. You ever heard that? You ever heard of that? Okay. Well, you have now. You have a thesis, which is an idea, or it's a thought. And that idea and that thought versus an antithesis, which is kind of a, an objecting idea, or a counter thought. And then so the thesis and the antithesis, they sort of battle it out, and what comes out of that is a synthesis, a compromise, a solution, an agreement. Your antithesis, or your thesis, your antithesis, and you get a synthesis, which is a compromise. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why the idea of compromise became so popular, uh, whether it be Congress or political realm or in church realm, now you know. As a matter of fact, I think the church has compromised this way into a dire predicament, but that again is a whole other sermon. But when you have your thesis and you have your antithesis and they bring about a synthesis, what that synthesis then becomes, that, that compromise, that agreement, then becomes a new what? 
Synthesis. And then that verse is an antithesis. And then you come to an agreement, you compromise, and that becomes a synthesis. And then what does that synthesis become? It becomes a new thesis. And see, that was Hegel's mentality. That was Karl Marx's mentality and all of these philosophers as that's the way you move men forward. You have this idea and then a counter idea and then a compromise and then you get them a little bit closer and then you, you move them a little bit further and you just keep moving them down, down through history. You keep moving man. You're manipulating man down through history and when you stop and think of who the God of this world is and it's not the God of heaven then you kind of get a clear picture of what's going on. As a matter of fact, Hegel, his idea was that you keep working toward the absolute idea. His key phrase, not, not mine. See, if you have the thesis and the antithesis and then the synthesis, what you're working toward is the absolute idea or, or the world mind. That world mind is motivated, according to Hegel and those other philosophers, by a spiritual force. And when that spiritual force takes place, then we're all just going to come together, we're going to sing Kumbaya, and we're going to declare peace and safety. Is it making sense what we're facing today? We are facing a diabolical, philosophy that is geared, that is, that is designed to lead us to a place that some global elitist and new world order folks want us to go, want us to be, and I guarantee you, me, I'm going to go kicking and screaming. I'm going to go kicking and screaming. Okay, I just, I don't go along with that kind of stuff. Let me inject a scripture real quick here. Revelation 13, verse 8. Revelation 13, verse, verse 8. Tim, you have it before I got it. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the land slain from the foundation of the world. Folks, that's the direction the world is headed. That's part of that absolute idea. When the whole world is convinced to worship the beast, the Antichrist, worship the dragon, that's the direction we're heading. See, I want us to understand the riots. I want us to understand the craziness. I want us to understand this virus that has been, that has exploded. It has a 99 plus percent recovery rate, but it's exploded. That I don't understand. Well, but I do in light of this. I do in light of this. But I want to simplify that Hegelian dialectic to you. I want, you, I want to demonstrate how it has been used and played out on the masses over the years and why you should feel like you've fallen down a rabbit hole also. The way this works is a problem is presented. I'm not going to say created, not in public anyway, but if you want me to say it, see me after. But a problem is created or presented. And that causes a reaction. And the reaction then causes those who have presented the problem to come up with what? A solution. Hey, trust us. Forget the fact that they're the one that presented it. Forget the fact that they're the ones who brought it up. You see the danger we're in? You see how we're being directed? How we're being led?
They write in with a solution. It wasn't that long ago that it was said by somebody up in Chicago that you never let a good crisis go to waste. And that's basically the motto of the left. You never let a good crisis go to left. That uh, 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 go to waste. That is the basis of Hegelian dialectic. And you use it to bring about what you think is good. And, and don't misunderstand me. The left and those that propose that philosophy think they are doing what is best. You'll hear a phrase that's used constantly for the greater good, for the greater good, for the greater good. And that phrase causes the sheep to follow. See, no one ever stops and says, what, the, the greater good, would you explain that? Now, how, how, how is it the greater good for me to allow myself to be enslaved? Yeah, and, and we better start asking those kind of questions, folks. But I don't, I don't want to get all bogged down in, into that. And actually, this Hegelian dialectic, you can apply to any and every event in history, even though Hegel just lived in the, uh, from 17-something to 18-something. But you can apply that. You can apply Hegelian dialectic to in the garden. Satan says, ah, eat this. Eve says, no, we're not going to eat this. Satan says, oh, eat. you're not going to die. You're going to be made of God. So you had synthesis, antithesis, antithesis, synthesis. See, that's one of Satan's ploys. It always has been since the garden. Every event, whether it be bombings, whether it be world wars, you name the event, folks. Hegelian dialectic philosophy has been behind it in order to put, even with Satan being at the top and leading the way, you need to understand that that present a solution that causes a reaction and you write in with a solution. That's been going on. Every event in the history of mankind is part of that, except for one. One event in the history of the world, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the only event that thwarted that damnable philosophy. First Corinthians 3 talks about the fact, had the, had the powers and principles had the leaders of this world known about the resurrection, they would have not crucified him. It is the resurrection that makes the difference in our lives, in our decisions, our lifestyles, and everything that we do. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that's happening today with this COVID-19 is a global reaction. Now, some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say. I don't like what I'm about to say. But I'm still going to say it. Because I think it needs to be said. Folks, we have been lied to. We have been misled. We have been horribly misinformed. On all that's going, that's going on. And that is, and it's happened to move us forward with an agenda or with an ideology, uh, an ideology that is destructive. So it enters this virus, and the world just goes bonkers and actually embracing, embracing this catastrophe. And what we need to understand that the virus is real. 
I'm not up here telling you that the virus is not real. The virus is real. Unfortunately, it's deadly. Matter of fact, it has to be to bring about the reaction to willingly comply and not question authority. It would have, it would have to be deadly. I guess, I think. I'm pretty sure. To get us to make the changes and do the ridiculous things that we've done. It would have to be deadly for us not to question authority. But folks, it is certainly time for us to start questioning authority, especially with something that has over a 99% survival rate. Yes, yeah, elderly need to take precautions. Those with immune deficiencies, they need, with compromised immunity systems, they need to take precautions. The virus is real. Did you notice when this all started, you weren't supposed to wear a mask. You were just supposed to isolate, just wash your hands a whole lot, no handshakes, no hugs, all the stuff that was going on. Uh, and, that, and just the isolation and, and, and shut down businesses, and that clobbered the economy. Okay, you couldn't really keep that going, so we know, have the people wear masks. Forget the fact that they're not very effective. And I'll challenge anybody. You show me a test that that, that mask, maybe the N95, maybe in a sterile surgical setting, but the cloth mask that people wear, you show me a test that demonstrates that it is effective against this virus. Well, it stops the bigger drops. Okay. But you're talking about destroying the United States economy over something that we really have a God-given immune system that works. Two reasons they want us to wear a mask. And if I'm offending anybody, I hate it. And I'm sorry. But you need to know what I, what I feel. And I'd be glad to give anybody an opportunity to stand up here and do a rebuttal. You're welcome. But the purpose of the mask, number one, is to muzzle you. It's to dehumanize you. Well, the only thing the mask is effective at doing is, is shaming Boy, the shame game has really kicked in full gear. It's to make you look as if you're a person that just doesn't care, but don't care factor. The masketeers, they are adamant that you don't love your fellow human being because you don't have something that's not doing anything anyway. But I think there's a larger reason for the mask. Second reason for the mask is to get folks to the point that we are so tired of masking up and all the health complications, the health consequences that are associated with a mask that we will gladly rip that mask off, exchange that mask for Billy Gates' vaccine where we can't wait till that vaccine comes out because then we won't have to wear those masks. We're saved. There's a solution. And they laugh all the way to the bank. The majority will be glad to take that vaccine. And you know why? Because you're already trained. You're already conditioned to accept that solution. Because it's all for the greater good. But I'm going to tell you something. 
You know what gives me hope? I mean, the Lord Jesus gives me hope and, and, and hoping the rapture is going to take place because I am ready. I am ready. But I want to give a shout out to several people. Trish Vineyard is little. But I'm telling you, this woman has a backbone like none I've ever seen before. Evan, you need to be proud. Well, he, but it's your posting that I see. Jill Calkins and Charles, I got to tell you, they are ferocious on Facebook. I appreciate that. Janet puts things on Facebook, Janet Smitkins. But I'm going to tell you somebody you don't want to argue with, and that's Janet Ayers. She puts, as I work on this and work on other things, uh, Janet and Jill have become my research uh, assistants. And I appreciate them because the things that they provide. But these women, these men have backbone. They see clearly what all is going on. And I appreciate their stand. Folks, I have no idea the direction we're going. I have no idea the direction all of this is going to take us other than I know that there is a predetermined outcome. And it is leading us toward that moment in time when there is a one-world church, a one-world government, a one-world currency. That flow is just taking us there. Fortunately for us, we've not been appointed to wrath. Fortunately for the church, the body of Christ, we are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But that does not mean that we just lay down and go, you that are left behind, you deal with it. We don't do that. We keep preaching the truth. Folks, we need to understand that there are powerful forces at work. And early on, we desired to cooperate, didn't we? When the whole virus thing came out, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. We trusted. We believed. So we limited our church service to the required amount. We went through the hand sanitizer. We quit hugging. We quit shaking hands. We did everything that they said do. And our church was down to hardly anybody here except the essential and then I would leave church and I would go to Walmart. Wait a minute. And then I'd go to Schnucks or Deerberg or you name the place and they would be packed. People pushing buggies full of toilet paper. And I said, wait, there's just... And they were paying people to stay home. And then when it came time to go back to work, why in the world would you want to go back to work when you have the government basically paying you to stay home? And the economy just keeps getting more and more crippled. No church, but Walmart, A-okay. There were some states you could not buy vegetable seeds, garden seeds, but if you needed an abortion, the doors were wide open. See, and I started seeing this, and I started realizing something smells in Missouri. Something is not right. We are being misled. We are being lied to. There is a problem being presented or created. You take your pick. It is causing a reaction. And there's a group of people who are going to come in and say, we have a solution, but first, put this mask on. Here, take this vaccine. Next week, we're going to be talking about the vaccine. We're going to be talking about the dangers of the vaccine. 
Next week, we're going to actually be talking a little more about Perilous Times' last day's connection with all that's going on with this. And this has been a media-driven frenzy. And it has just bewildered me how easy it has been to make people believe a lie. Nothing makes sense. We're in perilous times, folks. When people will so readily believe a lie, makes you understand that when it comes time to believe the lie, they are going to do it. You know what I'm convinced of? And I told Faye this right at the very beginning. And if you don't believe me, ask her. She'll tell you, right? See, you know what? I reason I believe that so many people were primed and pumped and ready to believe a lie like this is because we've watched too many television drama shows. You ever wanted to be a star? You ever wanted to, to be a character in one of the, the dramas that you watch on television for an hour? Well, see, I think that's what has been presented to us is a worldwide, nationwide, statewide, citywide drama, and people consider themselves characters in this drama, and they're loving it. Well, not me. My liberty, my freedoms, my constitution means a lot more to me than being a star. I got news for you. The divisiveness of the church, the divisiveness that's going around has been mind-boggling even within the church. Okay, that's the introduction to today's sermon. Now the sermon. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that, but I, I'll keep going. Folks, we need to understand that an orchestrated evil is afoot. And the church is asleep. The church is asleep. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34. If there has ever been a scripture that we need to understand, this is the scripture we need to understand today. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. To me, that's one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible. We're going to look at three sad scriptures this morning. Awake to righteousness. The word awake means to break out of a drunken stupor. If I were going to paraphrase that, I would say, get serious, folks, about what's taking place. Awake to righteousness. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. The church is asleep. Well, why do you say that? I'm going to give you Two examples and two and a half examples. And, and there are so many more to choose from. On April 6, a guy by the name of Don Lemon. Ever heard of Don Lemon? He is a broadcaster or news guy uh, with CNN. Uh, I really hope you don't know who he is. Because if you watch CNN, I don't want to know it. Okay? I don't want to know it. But Don Lemon, on July the 6th, he was interviewing someone and they were talking about you know, the tearing down of monuments and all the stuff that was going on. The, the idea, the theme, the news, it doesn't really have any uh, bearing on this or doesn't, doesn't really have any bearing. But it's what Don Lemon said that makes me think that the church is asleep or just not watching CNN and that's a good thing but Don Lemon said quote unquote Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect now as bad as that is Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect I don't know which Bible he's reading 
But here's what really upsets me. It's not that somebody who does not know the Lord Jesus would make such a crazy statement. But there was no pushback. There was no outcry. The church pretty much just yawned. Oh, honey, did you hear that? What time does the ball game start? That's what's happening. Chris Como. As a matter of fact, when Don Lemon said that, I think he was interviewing Chris Como. But then Chris Como, who was another news anchor for CNN, not to give them any uh, credit or promo, promo, but Chris Como said, things are going to get better. Now, if he had stopped there, I'd have said, okay, Chris. But he said, things are going to get better. We are going to do it ourselves. We don't need help from above. That's exactly what he said. That's quote, we don't need any help from above. Honey, is it time for dancing with the stars? That's the attitude of the church. Nothing. And even Chris Como's brother, uh, Andrew Como, who is the governor of New York, he said some disparaging things about prayer. And the church just settles back into its comfort zone and yawns and yawns. I would say yawn, but I remember how many years I left Alabama. Yawn. See, we've become the first church of do-nothing. That's what's happening. We've become the first complimentary assembly of goodnessville. And nothing is happening. Except, hey, Tom Russell just gave me some good news right before he came up here, that in Seattle or Portland, 500 Christians, or, or a whole bunch of Christians, went there and praying on the streets and witnessing and hundreds of people are coming to know Christ. That's what the church needs to be doing during these times. That's what the answer, the answer is. Maybe the church is waking up. How many? Wow, four to 5,000 believers hit the streets of Portland. Yeah. And four, four to 500 people came to know Christ. Wow. That's what we want to hear. But while a satanic force works its evil intent through the minds and culture of our society, the church slumbers comfortably. The satanic forces are being marshaled to accept a new world order. The church is debating whether or not they should have a traditional service along with a contemporary service. The church is arguing among itself which translation they ought to be using when there are people that are dying and going to hell. Now, understand, those are important issues. But we have gotten so involved in those issues that we've forgotten that there's a lost world out there and there's an active enemy. 1 Corinthians 15:34 Awake to righteousness, return to sobriety. Get serious about the work of God. And one of the saddest scriptures, for some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Do you realize that 90% of Christians, or 90% of Americans, believe in God? Now, I would ask the question, big G or little g? But 90% of Americans claim to believe in God. Less than, uh, 90% of Americans, less than 20% of America's, Americans attend church. Less than 20% of that 90% do not seek fellowship. They don't seek instruction. So something is seriously wrong. To me, that is staggering. 
They believe in a supreme being. But I would ask who that supreme being is. Is it the God of the Bible? Do you realize that four to 7,000 churches close each year? You wonder what's going on in the world today and what's happening? Four to 7,000 churches close each and every year. That's startling. And to show you how that Galian dialectic works, now they're talking about bulldozing churches in Chicago that don't comply. They're talking about turning off the lights and the water, the utilities to churches in California who do not comply. We grieve over there are seven, four to 7,000 churches closed each year, but now we're talking about government entities taking action against those churches that would dare defy their unconstitutional mandates? Church, if you don't rise up, if you don't start taking a stand, and all it would take is for us to say, nah, wouldn't be prudent, not going to do it. But we would rather acquiesce. And if one more person comes to me and says, well, what about Romans 13? I'm going to have a fit. Romans 13 is where it tells believers to obey, to obey the government. And I'm all for obeying the government. But there comes a time, folks, where we have to obey God rather than man. We have to recognize what is going on in our nation and realizing that what we're doing is constitutionally correct, what they're doing is constitutionally in error. That's incredible. Extremely important that we recognize the difference. You may say that those closing the churches or bulldozing the churches are far-fetched exemptions. But it amazes me how minor the threat needs to be in order to procure the results. Get in line or we're going to cut your water off. Yet protesters can gather by the thousands and they're applauded? That still can't get my mind around that. Between, and I'm almost done, folks, but between, this is important, right? Between 2010 and 2012, more than half of the churches in America, now listen, more than half of the churches in America did not add a single new convert. And we shake our head. And then I say, did we? Did we? Wow. You talk about the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. More than half of the churches in America did not add a single new believer. They did not leave us, lead a single individual to understand what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And we shake our heads and we're disgusted by that. And then we go, did we? God be merciful. Psalm 142.4, and I'm hurrying folks. Psalm 142.4. To me, one of the saddest, second saddest scriptures in the entire Bible. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Wow. That is convicting. While the church slumbers, the enemy moves. And if the church is not asleep, it's lazy and it's apathetic. 
Someone's, the prognosis, I was reading, and someone said that the, the prognosis for the church is over the next 10 years, every day for the next 10 years, over 10,000 new baby boomers are going to retire. And what happens after you retire? Okay, we're not even going to talk about death. But it shows you that those who attend church are getting older and older. And God is going to call them home one day. And the same article talked about the fact that millennials do not attend church anymore. They are disgusted with church. And this article was written that pointed the blame for the demise of the local organized church at the feet of the local organized church. It said, you have no one to blame but yourself, organized local church. You're no longer relevant to society. And they said the church's demise is attributed to the clergy abuse sexually, then the cover-up of that sexual abuse, and people said, I just don't want anything to do with it. The other reason that the church is on the demise is because a fundamentalist, because of people who believe the Bible. It's because you Bible believers, you're too rigid. You too, you're too strict. You believe what God's Word says. That, that was one of their points. The reason why the church is, is dying and the local church is no longer effective is because you preach God's Word. Well, guess what? It may just be me and Faye and Ralph, but I'm going to keep preaching God's Word. I'm... Millennials are no longer interested in our church because of our traditional values, is what it says. We do not appeal to them who are lost. The Bible is too rigid. It says we lie. We lie. We say we're open. We say that we want people to come and visit us but then once they get here, you know what we tell them? We tell them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father but by Him. We tell them that there's no other way under heaven to be saved except through Christ. We preach such a, a inclusive or, or, or such an exclusive message. Why? You're just not tolerant enough. And, and your tradition, your, your stand on traditional marriage that's got to go if you want us sitting in your pool in your pews it's not going to happen you say we're loving oh but you you're lying because you really don't love i tell you what we do we love enough to speak the truth we love enough to make sure people understand what god's word says and folks if you can't see the thesis antithesis and the synthesis and all of this is going forward and how it's pushing us and all of these issues and all of these problems and how we are being manipulated by those that are going to welcome and worship that man of sin eventually then we need to talk about your salvation we need to talk about how and where you stand with God Folks, the solution, real quick, the solution, the number one solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Him, right? Amen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, Christ, and having faith in Him and, and understanding that He loves us and we get to love Him. And oh, what, a, what a relationship. But the solution is not government. It's not government. As a matter of fact, I'm almost convinced that they're all complicit. They're all part of the globalist agenda. They're all moving us toward a new world order. 
The answer is not a vaccine. Matter of fact, that's when the cure is worse than the the ailment, you got some serious trouble. But the solution is Christ. The solution is for the church to awake to righteousness and sin not and understand that there are those who have not the knowledge of God and we need to be ashamed of ourselves and make sure that we share the gospel. The gospel. Isaiah 5.20 I think is clearly a picture of what's going on today. Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that called evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Folks, we've allowed those who believe in the Hegelian dialectic to bring that about. God knew that was going to happen. Woe to them that called evil good and good evil. The next week we're going to be talking about end times implications with all of this as we tumble down that rabbit hole you know I feel like I feel like I I went to sleep feel like I laid down to take a nap and that horrific scenario was nowhere in sight of the new world order and all the stuff that's going on. And I woke up, and it's all on the verge of being a reality. That is a one-world government, a one-world religious system, an economic system where there's a cashless society where you can't sell, you can't buy, you can't trade, unless you have that mark. That's where... This world is headed. But those words that we, that we shared, awake to righteousness for some and not the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame, that's sad. The words that says, I looked on my right hand, I looked, I looked on my left hand, I looked on my right hand, and no one cared for my soul, those are sad words. Let me tell you the saddest words in the Scripture. And unfortunately, there is a world that's going to hear this. And it breaks my heart, it should break your heart. And that is, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is bone-chilling. I would much rather they hear today that glorious news that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But who's going to tell them if we don't tell them? Heaven is silent. And it's because heaven depends on its ambassadors. Who's going to tell them? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We still have time to share that message for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We need to be telling a world of God's undying love. Yes, there is wrath coming. He is a just God. He is a long-suffering God. But that's going to come to an abrupt halt. But until it does, folks, may we be actively sharing with a world that is desperate to hear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that you will open our hearts, open our eyes. Father, we pray for wisdom. We want to be a church that is bold in our message, that understands what's happening in in the world today. Father, we want to be gentle, we want to be loving, but we want to be truthful. Father, the only servants we want to be are yours. The only ones that we desire to bow to is you. 
Now, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for those in authority. We pray for wisdom. And Father, we pray for all the crazy things that are going on, for we do feel like we've fallen down a rabbit hole. But Father, we look to you to bring clarity, to bring understanding, to bring hope. Father, you use us as your messengers of your amazing grace and of your undying love. Father, may none of our family, may none of our friends ever hear those dreadful words, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Father, may they hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in the name that's above all other names. We pray it in the name of the one who is coming for his church. We pray it in the name whose name is above all other names. The name of Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Amen.